0: I think when that changes, you're going to see a lot more capital come in. Is it going to be, you know, I don't want to be all dramatic and be like, it's going to be a tidal wave of money coming in. They're all just waiting for this. But I think we'll see it. I think it'll be, make a material difference. And as you know, when any money comes into our space, there's such a limited supply that it doesn't take much.
1: Hello there. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs too, and I am mining Bitcoin with Compass. I've been mining for over 10 months and have already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin, which has more than paid off two of my S19s. Anyone can start mining with Compass Mining and to help you, Compass has launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors such as price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I am happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. If you are interested in mining and you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C O M P A S S M I N I N G.io. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin but I'm still only buying. Come on, look at this market. It is the time to buy. We're not sellers right now, are we? Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying these dips, and I have also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Cake Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to CakeWallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Also, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin and wider crypto industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty in finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB and I could not be happier. BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers funds, and miners active in UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this. If you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you may want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter.
0: I've got a broken uh, block clock at home. What? You know the block clock? Yeah. I've got a broken one at home and it broke at 61,000. No. So it's, sitting, it's <laughs> sitting in my kitchen next to the one that says 19,000. I'm like, what?
1: <laughs> I've got one. I, we sometimes bring it traveling. Um, and the last time we, I brought it back, I've still not plugged it in again. So it still says like 29,000. I look at it every day.
0: Uh, Even right? that. <laughs> yeah. I sent it off with a picture. I'm like, this sucks, dude. <laughs> I was supposed to send the broken one back, but I didn't.
2: <laughs> Please tell me, are we recording this, Jeremy? Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> this is the start of the interview. Let's say a broken block clock is right twice a year.
0: <laughs> Let's hope so. I'll take that. It's well, at sixty-one thousand.
2: So we uh, we had the block clock out for one of our interviews once, and it was yeah. um, it was there at the front and and had the price up. But the problem is, is because we were recording like six weeks of shows. The show's coming out later on, and the price is different. So we were doing shows, and it was say forty three thousand. The price was like thirty three thousand. People are like, "Yeah!" <laughs> <What>? <laughs> no, people are like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> and then you yourself, you are like,
0: "Shit, I should have sold."
2: <laughs> but yeah, so uh, yeah, um, so you got two block clocks.
0: I have two working and one broken.
2: And the difference between them is what's that? Thirty two thousand? No, no, f- f- forty two thousand. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how much do you care about price? How important is price?
0: It's not unimportant. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't think it's so important day to day. Trends are important, and ultimately the price is important. Um, it's important because I'm not particularly diversified in my life, and I do have <laughs> expenses and things like that. So, um, you know, I'd like to be in a position not to be forced to sell.
2: Are you irresponsibly long?
0: I think I am irresponsibly long. I'm not, you know... 110% long I don't use any leverage mm-hmm. um but I have a disproportionate amount of my net worth in bitcoin
2: Yeah I'm I'm with you on that <laughs> Yeah
0: it's a, it's a decreasing percentage of my total net worth but uh not because of any reduction just because as the price goes down and the price doesn't go down on like my apartment or something you
2: know. But the the stupid thing about it is is the uh if you if you look back to like I don't know Two thousand twenty, before everything went up, yep. Bitcoin was around twelve thousand dollars. Like I felt pretty good. Yeah, and I've got more Bitcoin now. Is it a higher price? And I'm like, this kind of sucks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The way like different prices can very quickly have different emotions attached to it. A couple weeks ago, or not even a couple weeks ago, a week ago when it was 19,000 and 48 hours ago when it was 21,000 all of a sudden 21 felt a lot different that time than it did 3 weeks prior on the way down
2: how much how much do you think cuz I, I i never never thought we'd see sub 20 again i thought that was done yeah you know i i i could see mid 20s i could see under 30 i could i just never saw that come in and then obviously i think there's a number of reasons why it came uh-huh. i think uh, the contagion from uh, some of these Uh, C5 firms blowing up from what happened with Three hours Capital. Like, do you think that's why we dragged down?
0: I think it was a perfect storm. Right. Um, One of the big factors, I think, is related to big global macro hedge funds. So when we we got this correlation between Bitcoin and big tech, a three or four to one kind of beta, as they say, so um, big tech goes up 1%. Bitcoin goes up 3 or 4%. Big tech goes down 1%. Bitcoin goes down 3 or 4%. So if you were a big hedge fund that had a billion dollars of equity exposure um, in big tech, and you wanted to hedge that position, you could short a $250 million worth of Bitcoin and you would be completely hedged. And borrowing Bitcoin, unfortunately, is very inexpensive, about 3% a year. So... That was a very popular trade, which does a lot of things that aren't good. Number one, it creates a massive seller of Bitcoin. And number two, it reinforces that correlation.
2: Is this the whole risk risk on, risk off thing?
0: It's a little different. It's like if you're, uh, you know, pick a big hedge fund, like a Tiger Global or something, and you've got $10 billion of equity exposure to big tech. And you're like, well, shit, I don't want to sell, you know, my Google, Facebook, Apple, you know netflix stocks here but i want to hedge it because i think recession's coming things are going down oh i see, I see. you buy you know f- you know you short 4.5 billion dollars worth of bitcoin or something you know or two and in, in that case my example would have been like 200 you know 2.5 billion or something just to hedge equally but you you hedge by selling bitcoin by shorting bitcoin that way if um if your tech stocks go down by 1% And your bitcoin short goes up by four percent, the fact that you've sold one-fourth of the amount of the bitcoin hedge as your equities, you're evenly hedged.
2: I see, I see. Okay, so this is why everything was so correlated.
0: It reinforced the correlation that was already there. They started doing the trade because the correlation was there, but this reinforced it. So there's that, and then the fact that we are correlated with equities at the moment, which is something that I think will ultimately break because it's not an equity. Um, That kind of sucked because we're facing a little bubble burst and, you know, obviously stock markets going down for a variety of reasons, Um, fed raising rates, et cetera. So when stocks go down, we're going down. That's the risk off kind of thing. Sell anything that you had a profit in, so to speak, we're getting hit with that. Um, You know, it's kind of a perfect storm. In addition to that, uh, Bitcoin as an emerging inflation hedge. Well, yes, we have inflation. Nobody argues that they're inflation now. They argued with us for a long time, you know before, but now everybody acknowledges it. But the problem for Bitcoin is the Fed is addressing this. And so when you're addressing the problem, some people's assumption is the problem is going away and they're like, well, we don't need to own the hedge anymore if the inflation is going to go down and not be worse in the future, we don't need to own the hedge.
2: Right. So it sounds to me like the smart traders out there uh, found a way to hedge their, uh, hedge their investments. But in doing so, they've kind of, they've kind of put us in a situation where we can't defend our narrative it undoes our narrative, because there isn't correct. enough people in the market buying based on our narrative.
0: That's correct. And exacerbating that problem is the fact that um, the majority of those interested in Bitcoin are hodlers, right? Mm. So those hodlers are not influencing the day-to-day price. If you've got your Bitcoin in storage and you're not selling, you're not in the market day-to-day making a market on that bid-ask spread, it's the speculators and the haters that are doing that, right? And so what you get is this very small percentage of the players in the space dictating the price. Well, listen, it's
2: good, it's good to sit down with you. Normally, you start by, hi, how are you doing? <laughs> but you told us about your broken block clock. Um, yeah. There's a lot I want to talk to you about today. And I don't normally do this, but I don't know if everyone knows you. I know some people know you, but they know you because of somebody else. And I'm we don't want to that cover that. Well we, don't, we don't want to cover that because that's been covered. Um, but I do. Can you just, for context, give people your background so they understand who we're talking to?
0: Yeah, sure. I, um, I came out of traditional finance. My first job out of undergrad was I was a U.S. government bond trader. Um, and then after that, went to Columbia Business School Uh, After that, I got into venture capital and private equity, where I was investing almost exclusively in companies that leverage the internet uh, as part of their business model. And it was in the course of doing that in 2013 that I discovered Bitcoin uh, at a conference here in Miami, coincidentally. And when I saw that, you know, something really clicked for me in looking at the internet It was clear that the internet was really good for transmitting information and data, but not so securely. Emails, posting pictures, et cetera. But people were really afraid to put credit card into a website, things like that. And then when I saw Bitcoin, this was the first time that I saw that you could transmit value safely and securely using the internet. And then even more mind blowing was party A didn't need to know party B at all. So it was like no intermediary, totally trustless. And this was like, mind blowing to me so i thought okay i got to do something in this space like this is this is where it's going and i thought what kind of business can i start you know what what can i do how do i take advantage of this and it was like okay i could do a directory of companies that take bitcoin
2: this B-
0: would bitcoin yahoo yeah this, this would still not be a good business right yeah <laughs> so a decade later still not a good business so i just in the end i just bought a bunch of bitcoin and figured limited supply if this works out price is going to go up and it went down it went up it went down and up in really dramatic kind of ways. I bought in December 2013, and uh, after a while, the volatility, feeling like I was too up or too down, I sold all of it, um, made a little bit of profit, not enough, and uh, even at today's numbers, it would have been just fine if I'd held on to it. And uh, I've been accumulating since 2016, and even to this day, I don't have as much as I had in. 2013. We all so. have that
2: story. My, my, yeah. Well, mine's more uh, some 17, 18. Uh, I have uh, less than half of what I had at the peak in 2018. Cool. Uh, but it is what it is. That's, a, that's yep. a painful lesson we go through. Uh, so that gap, how long was the gap between those? From when you sold out to you started accumulating again?
0: Uh, about two years.
2: About two years. And yeah. what did you do in those two years? Were you like me when I had my gap where I'd occasionally look up the price, it's gone down, or it's gone back up,
0: or... I was more focused on the asset class. Like, is this okay. gaining traction? Are people talking about this? Does anybody care? Is this going to be a forgotten thing? Because until the world starts to catch on to it and people are interested in it, it doesn't matter how cool the technology is if, if it's not gaining traction. And I, I started to have friends asking me about it and things like that. And you'd see a little more news articles on it and people would talk about it. So I started to like you know get a little more involved again and went back to some of my initial contacts in the industry who kind of um, were very helpful in like kind of, you know, sharing what was going on on the inside of things. One of my buddies started Blockfolio back okay. in the day. And, yep. you know, he was like kind of a Sherpa for me early on. And um, so, yeah, just kind of networking around who, that group. Who is that? His name's Ed Moncada.
2: Exactly. He might be the guy I used to play poker with. For sure, he was. Yeah. yeah, we used to have an online poker game during the. During, yeah, he was in that. In he, that was, game. Yeah. he was. He yeah. was. Yeah, that was during yeah, the uh, COVID period, and yeah. um,
0: he kind of taught me how to play poker a little bit back in the day. He's a good player. That's an understatement. We had some.
2: Yeah. We had some fun tape. There were some tapes that It'd be him, myself, Mike McDonald, who's a professional poker player, yeah. uh, Charlie Lee,
0: yeah, Bobby uh, Lee, Bobby
2: Lee. It was like good. It was always Mr. a good Light,
0: table. Mr. Mr. Litecoin himself. Yeah, Brad yeah. Mills was in there. Yeah, um, and maybe even Ari Paul.
2: Ari Paul was in there. Yeah. yeah, I made about three Bitcoin during that period. Well done. I think I gave a lot of it back to Mike McDonald. I had a <laughs> I'm such an idiot. We had one game where I was like, I think I was like 1.5 Bitcoin up, and like people are leaving because it was late, and there was just me and Mike left. And he said, do "You want to do some heads up?" And I was like, "Yeah." And honestly, in about 15 minutes, I lost the Bitcoin to him. It's <sighs> like get out of here. He's the professional.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: So those guys are savage. So what what gave you a conviction back? Just just the general interest.
0: Really, what it was is when something captures the attention of an entire planet, you have to start paying attention. And I kept thinking to myself, Bitcoin doesn't have a marketing budget. You know, Uh, if you think about Uber, right? Uber raised about $10 billion that they went and spent marketing Uber all over the world. Some information apparently is coming out now that they're marketing tactics weren't all that scrupulous and all kinds of stuff, but... Um, well, it's just come out
2: in the UK as well. There's some... Somebody was having meetings with them. It wasn't a declared meeting. I think uh, someone in office. Yeah,
0: yeah but they're, they're they're trying to purchase a lot of influence. They're spending a lot of money on advertising. I remember times when, like, people were setting taxis on fire and protesting and things like this, right? And, you know, France, Paris was against it. London was against it. And then but nothing's more powerful than an idea that whose time has come, right? Mm-hmm. And, when, and when the people want something, they're going to get what they want. It may be like a circuitous path to it, but they're going to get what they want. And they wanted Bitcoin. They wanted some digital asset, right? And there was no marketing budget to do this. Yet across the entire planet, there was gaining interest in this. It was really amazing. And so I just kept thinking, this is kind of a groundswell. This is... This is really going to catch on and be a thing. Like, we need to really get back in and be a part of this. So that that was kind of what did it.
2: And this time, we've had volatility again. Yeah. Up again, down again. Slightly different shape chart than four years ago. Uh, how come this time you haven't sold your Bitcoin and walked away?
0: I think this time you have to come back to the fundamental advances that okay. we've that we've had. When I started my Bitcoin fund and, and got into this space and would talk to others about it, everybody in the United States had the same concern, which is, oh, the government's going to take this away, regulatory issues, um, this is illegal, all this kind of stuff, right? And this was a very legitimate concern. There was big concern, how is China going to regulate? How's the US? All, the, all these massive nation states who are potentially threatened by this digital asset, right? How are they going to react? And it wasn't until uh, this administration and Gary Gensler, for all of his other flaws, um, treasury secretary, et cetera, all of this started kind of moving in a more positive direction. Cynthia Lummis, awesome. Um, And so now I think we're at a point where we do have, we don't have regulation yet, but we've got a good deal of regulatory clarity that the US government is going to regulate this in a pragmatic way. And frankly, I think Bitcoin benefits from regulation. Um, and so that takes the single biggest risk off the table.
2: Sorry, benefits from regulation or benefits from regulatory clarity? Both. Both.
0: Both. I mean, regulatory clarity for sure, no markets like uncertainty, but actual regulation, you know, for the, for the, Independent libertarian individual, yeah, they don't want any regulation, regulatory clarity. They don't even want to hear the word "you're evil" for just mentioning it, right? But in reality, um, if those if those people that love Bitcoin want to see it be successful on the scale that they expect, it is going to require institutional capital coming in. And it's going to require truly high net worth individuals and family offices coming in, and those groups are reluctant to allocate serious capital until those guide rails are in place. And when they see that there are real rules and regulations and there's a tax treatment for it and, you know, different guidelines that they're meant to follow, then they're more comfortable allocating a significant portion of capital.
2: And are we even at the point yet that we have the right regulation for that to happen, or do you think we're approaching it?
0: We're approaching it. We're approaching it. We're approaching it. I think that... All of those groups that I mentioned are now really focused on it. Some acknowledge the fact that, hey, it's at a low price now, and maybe it's at a low price because all this regulatory stuff isn't ironed out yet, so I might dip a toe, take a little risk here because the risk-reward benefit is greater. But the truth is, I think at the end of the day, they're looking for a little more regulatory clarity. And that's across a broad spectrum, right? Like if you're a publicly traded company, it's very perilous to own Bitcoin and have it on your balance sheet. The tax structure is very punitive. That's under review now. Optimistic that that gets, you know, set to something more pragmatic. So all of these things need to kind of be ironed out before um, before the real money is going to jump in.
2: Right. And we have had some real money jumping in. Um, yep. Uh, obviously, we've had MicroStrategy. We've had Tesla. Uh, yep. We've had Square. Uh, have those companies had face a lot of difficulty in
0: actually setting up the structure so they
2: could do this?
0: I don't think it's so much the difficulty of setting up the structure. MicroStrategy is kind of unique in the sense that it's pretty much their entire balance sheet. So investors will take the time to look through to, okay, what's the number of Bitcoin that you hold? I'll do the multiplication by the price, and I'll come up with a value for that. And I can come up with a value for MicroStrategy with that as a factor plus the underlying business. But if you are say, Apple, right, and you've got $60 billion or whatever it is on the balance sheet, and you say, yeah, I'd like to buy $5 billion worth of Bitcoin here. Well, the problem with that is if Apple goes and buys that $5 billion worth of Bitcoin, and the price of Bitcoin goes from $45,000 to $20,000, and they take a massive hit on that, right, and they lose, you know, whatever that would be, a couple billion dollars, and then the way the accounting is now, they have to mark that down. And that shows up as an operating loss, as if Apple lost money selling iPhones, right? Right. And so when they miss their earnings by X number of cents, right, are investors really going to take the time to parse the balance sheet and see, oh, wait, that loss was due to this Bitcoin thing. And it's not really a loss. It's a paper loss. They didn't. S-. And the, the truth is probably not. They're going to affect like,
2: the share price
0: exactly they're going to be like you missed earnings by a nickel like and from apple's point of view they're like yeah we don't need this shit like this is more headache than it's worth so props to elon for having the balls to to do it and and yeah and and
2: so the tax treatment that is that being dealt with at the
1: at the moment
0: it is being reviewed it's yeah it's being
1: reviewed okay yeah. is that the same way like holding shares on your balance sheet would be treated
0: no i think it's different if you were to hold shares on your balance sheet it's treated like if you could, and I'm not in all not in all cases you can't. But if you were to hold assets on your balance sheet in general, mm-hmm. it's not treated as an operating loss from the operating company. Generally speaking, it's like, oh, this money that you held or these investments that you had have become worth less, but your operating business delivered this. I see. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Interesting. And and once that changes, what you think? There's a wall of money that's going to come in, or it's just going to be just a bit easier, so you might, or is it going to be a case of someone like you getting out there and talking to people?
0: I think there's an education curve that people have to go up, but at least it makes it possible. Right now, if you were the CEO of a publicly traded company and you wanted to put Bitcoin on the balance sheet, this would be a really legitimate deterrent. And I'm sure that those people exist and those companies exist. So I do feel like when this is solved, assuming it's solved in in a good pragmatic way, and it should be solved, right? Because The purpose of accounting is to let people know what the financial state of the company is. And to have to carry Bitcoin on your balance sheet at the lowest price that it's been, not even the current price, right? Is like very misleading. Pardon me. So if Bitcoin was at 40,000, went down to 20,000 and then came back up to 40,000, you would still have to reflect it at that 20,000 level, which is not accurate, right? Right. So I think when that changes, you're going to see a lot more capital come in. Is it going to be, you know, I don't want to, be all dramatic and be like, it's going to be a tidal wave of money coming mm. in. They're all just waiting for this. But I think we'll see it. I think it'll be make a material difference. And as you know, when any money comes into our space, there's such a limited supply that it doesn't take much.
2: So what about those companies that aren't privately uh, sorry, those companies that aren't publicly traded or the high net worth individuals, are there any challenges they face separate from the public? If traded? they're
0: subject to GAAP accounting, which they're probably not in most cases, then no, they're not really.
2: You should probably explain GAAP accounting. Not just for me, but yeah, gap accounting
0: in, in general is just um it is it's the accounting method that all US publicly traded companies are held to. They must comply with this gap accounting, generally accepted accounting principles, maybe. Oh, okay. I okay. think and they have to follow those rules. Private companies, generally speaking, unless for some reason they're obligated to follow GAAP, don't have to follow those rules. So they should be able to buy Bitcoin and not have it be an issue.
2: And you you set up a new business this time. It wasn't a directory of companies except in Bitcoin.
0: I did, yeah. Yeah, you
2: set up a, was it a fund.
0: I set up a Bitcoin fund yeah. uh, called Bitcoin Investment Group. And the goal there was to try to deliver all the best attributes of Bitcoin um, to family offices, wealthy people, institutional capital, so that they could be as comfortable as possible buying Bitcoin. So... This group of investors is not interested in, you know, holding their own keys. They're not particularly interested in going with a Coinbase or a new exchange where they, you know, just don't have the confidence that they're going to be there forever. They want a custodian. That's a name that they can trust. So um, we did it with Fidelity,
2: $12
0: trillion, you know, investment firm um, who's super pro-Bitcoin. So we did it with Fidelity. Um, we have some really particular attributes of the fund that are unique. The biggest thing for me was to find a way to do it so that yes, you can invest in this Bitcoin fund that we started. But if you ever wanted Bitcoin out of the fund, you can actually take possession of that digital property. You can get Bitcoin. So if someone invests in my fund and they say, you know what, Eric, I'm done. I want to redeem. They have a choice. We can sell the Bitcoin and go back to U.S. dollars and send them U.S. dollars, or they can provide a wallet address that will verify and will send them the amount of Bitcoin that they're entitled to. So that's a big deal. Um, the other, Some other attributes are we charge a super low fee, just 1% a year. Um, it's not something that I really make any money on. It's more of kind of a service uh, to Bitcoin in the industry. Um, but also, all the funds are commingled. But we go to great lengths to do separately managed accounting so that when someone else in the fund sells their Bitcoin, other individuals are not impacted from a tax point of view. So you come in, when you come in, you leave when you leave. That's what dictates your tax you know, triggers. Um, in addition to that, the accounting for this stuff is really challenging. So we did something pretty unique. Uh, your statements are in Bitcoin. So if you have the equivalent of 10 Bitcoin in the fund, when you get your account statement, there's not U.S. dollars on it. It just says 10 Bitcoin.
2: So is the statement the same every month? Unless they're buying... The
0: statement is the same every month, less the pro rata 1% a year fee, which is charged in Bitcoin.
2: Right. (laughs) One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, Eric. Exactly. And in terms of doing this, like you went out and set this up. How much of your work is proactive sales versus reactive people coming to you?
0: It's almost all reactive. I'm just, some might say that I'm not a good marketer, um, but I just don't believe that financial investments of any kind are something that should be sold. Okay. I'm not really, it just doesn't fit my personality to sell a financial investment. I do think that I'm happy to, you know, in generality say that I think everyone should have exposure to Bitcoin. And I don't think it's the you know, only put in as much as you can lose bullshit that I hear people say on television. I think that's very much not the case. Um, I think it should be a considerably higher percentage. Um, But I do think that once someone's ready to make that step, that we offer a vehicle that is the most prudent for a lot of reasons. Another cool thing about it, by the way, that I mentioned is you're investing in a fund. And here in the States, when you fill out your taxes on the front page of that form, it says, do you own any cryptocurrency or did you invest in any cryptocurrency? Pretty sure this is just a way for the U.S. government to start to know where it is. But by virtue of investing in Bitcoin Investment Group, you're investing in a fund. You don't own any Bitcoin. So the correct answer to that question is no. So it's also a nice way to... And then at the end of the year, our accountants do an audit, et cetera. And these people are given a K-1 that they hand to their accountant just like every other investment they have in a hedge fund or real estate property or whatever it is. So it's very comfortable for that class to invest.
2: So I'd be interested how you explain it to people because depending on who you're explaining Bitcoin to for the first time, or maybe they know a little bit, the the attributes that you would put forward or the story you tell would be different. So if you're I don't know, if you've got somebody in Ukraine who's trying to flee the country, and you want yep. to explain Bitcoin to them, there's certain properties you, you would be talking about. You know, self-custody and um, censorship resistance, yada yada. But if you were explaining it to, I don't know, somebody based out in, uh, I don't know, maybe in Africa who is right. suffering under high inflation, you would explain it to them in a different way. But when you're talking to a you know, high net worth individual... In what, the United States. In the United States, right. you know, how do, what is it you're telling
0: them? I think the most constructive narrative is digital gold. And it's easy to differentiate, as you know, ad nauseum, why Bitcoin is so much better than a digital gold for an infinite number of reasons that we don't have to rehash. But that's the conversation that I have. It's, there was gold, this is a digital gold. Every digital successor of every analog predecessor has not just equaled you know, their predecessor, they have like crushed it. Whether you can think of traditional phones, rotary phones and mobile phones kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is reasonable to think that Bitcoin is a digital gold. Um, and they invariably have children or grandchildren and it's easy to explain to them that their child or grandchild doesn't have any interest in the bar of gold that they have in their safe, but they would have interest in Bitcoin. And they quickly start to understand why younger generations who grew up with an iPad or an iPhone in their hand would gravitate towards this. Those are the same people that had no problem spending $10 on a skin in a video game when they were just a kid and thought it had real value, whereas the parent was like, that's just pixels on a screen, you know? So I think that that resonates, and you get most of the phone calls that I have occur with, uh, some matriarch or patriarch on the phone, this, you know, 65, seven-year-old, very wealthy individual and their kid on the phone with them or their grandkid in some cases. And it's like, well, you know, my kid's been telling me about this for years and, you know, they dismissed him, but now it's on the front page of all the newspapers they read and CNBC, which they're watching all day. And now they want to, know about it, and they don't want to look stupid having missed out. So digital gold, I think, is the most constructive narrative. But in addition to that, you look at gold at roughly, you know, $10 plus trillion plus I think it's also the most constructive narrative for the success of Bitcoin, not just for, you know, potential affluent American investors. If we get to, you know, $10 trillion as a market cap on Bitcoin, or even half of that, I think a lot of stuff starts to fall into place. And yes, Bitcoin's got battles that it wants to fight, but those battles go a lot differently, you know, at, you know, 250,000 per BTC.
1: Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. This show is brought to you by the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and the 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Yan, Brady, and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference along with my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge. They are inviting the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption and from mining to lightning. Whether you want to attend or sponsor the event, you can find out more at pacificbitcoin.la which is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.LA Next up, it is Ledger, and the world's most popular wallet just got better. Ledger has recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. With a larger screen, it is now easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same level of high security as all other Ledger products. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. To find out more about Bit Casino, the first Bitcoin Casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, we have BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for those people living in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. You can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases forever. And you can earn 2% back in Bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. Now, if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions. All available at blockfi.com. i.com.
2: Well, is that because uh, somebody was explaining to me once there's, uh, there's some investors who can't invest in Bitcoin because the market isn't just big enough?
0: I'm not sure. Maybe at the nation state level, some might think that, but I don't think so. I mean, sailors bought what, four billion dollars worth of this stuff. I think I think it's big enough. Who was
2: telling us that? Do you remember that?
1: Was it I, Travis? I remember the conversation. Someone was talking about like a trillion dollar market cap being some sort of limit, but I can't remember who it was.
2: Yeah. It might have been Travis Cling.
0: No, I think it's I think it's big enough for anybody that wants to invest. I think actually the what I'm surprised hasn't happened is because It's so thinly traded relative to other stuff on a dollar basis. I'm surprised that some nation state sovereign wealth fund, massive hedge fund has not come in and said, well, shit, I can, you know, accumulate a few billion dollars worth of this stuff on the DL dollar cost, you know, just, you know, set a TWAP time weighted, you know, um, and just buy, 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 you know, every second for a month. And accumulate a bunch of it, and then you can actually drive the price up. I mean, if the Saudis did that, if they bought ten billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, fifty billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, over a course of a couple months, and then they announced, "Oh, we're going to price oil in Bitcoin or something," the price of Bitcoin would go up ten x. You know, um, if a nation state, if a Turkey who is having all these issues were to print a bunch of Turkish lira and buy. You know, a couple billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, and then announce something positive in some way. We're backing our currency with Bitcoin, or we're doing something else with Bitcoin. Like, boom! Like you'd get this massive self-fulfilling prophecy on an investment, even a hedge fund. You know, a Bill Ackman could say, "I bought five billion dollars worth of Bitcoin," and then announce it after the fact, and people go, "Holy shit!" Bill Ackman bought five billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, and anybody who is short it would cover their short, and a whole bunch of other people will go long. So. It's not a security, so you can do that without it being securities violations or fraud. So there's just tremendous opportunity for some big player to do something like that.
2: And, and these people phoning you and perhaps they're sat there with their son or grandson saying, I've heard about this, they, they're, they're tracking the cultural phenomenon that is Bitcoin. They understand. Yeah. What kind of pushback
0: are you getting? What are, they, what are the things they're asking? Initially, it was mostly the regulatory stuff. That was the big deal. Really? And, you know, we live, eat and breathe this stuff every day. They don't know about um, Lummis and Gillibrand and and the bill. They don't know about the president's executive memorandum, you know, ordering people to regulate this pragmatically. They're not aware of these things. They just, they might still have these misconceptions that this is going to get outlawed and you just kind of have to update them on, well, here's where we really are. And, you know, we have bipartisan support. How many other things have you heard of in the United States that actually have bipartisan support? Mm. Not a lot.
2: Well, yeah, so, I mean, that's been on my mind a lot recently. If you want to cover Bitcoin from the angle of uh, conservative politics, there's a lot of people out there you can talk to. And if you want to cover it from a libertarian angle, there's a lot of people you can talk to. On the uh, more progressive, liberal Left side, there yeah. isn't so many people, and you know we're actively trying to pursue people to talk about it from that side. I, I think it's really important that it is a yeah. nonpartisan issue. I think what uh, Senator uh, Senator Gillibrand and Senator Lamas did was was incredible, and you know big props to them for that. We, we've got a guy coming down in the next couple of days who's working on a book called "The Progressive Case for Bitcoin," mm-hmm. and uh, we've gone through the original structure with him, and it's it's I mean, it's fantastic. He's approaching all the issues that yeah. progressives care about. And he's, he's shining a Bitcoin lens on that. And rather than get into fights of, oh, you know, criticizing people for their, their political beliefs, actually, be, it, we can get in this more proactive space where we can start actually saying, well, if you think of, if you care about this, this is what Bitcoin can do for you know, wealth inequality or the wealth gap, or this is what it can do to support uh, climate change issues. There's all these yeah. issues that we can deal with. And, and I think what that does, it stops us... Uh, fighting over our differences and start trying to empathize with our differences and use Bitcoin as that kind of, um, that tool to bring people together.
0: I think it's actually, I think the case for uh, the progressives and the liberal left is by far the strongest case that Bitcoin has to Mm. make. I think that um, you've got tremendous percentage of this country as well as the world that is unbanked. And... To be able to have those people ostensibly be banked just by having a smartphone, which they already have, is pretty remarkable. Take it to the next level, the fact that they might be banked and be able to hold their wealth in something like Bitcoin that's not going to get crushed by inflation like the dollar would, now you're narrowing that wealth gap a little. Because if you are in that upper class, that asset-owning class of people, inflation is bad, but it's not that bad because you own assets, real estate, stocks, other things that are inflating with this inflation. You're getting that asset inflation benefit. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you literally cannot afford the gas and the groceries and you don't have the benefit of those assets inflating to offset that. So the fact that they could be holding Bitcoin on their smartphone in kind of like a savings account and in the same simple wallet when they wanna transact, you know. Swap into a stable coin or USDC or whatever to do a transaction that could really, really help them in multiple ways. Number one, they could save because now they have a bank and number two, they can fight inflation. So I think the use case is really extraordinary.
2: Yeah, we had Ovik Roy on the show from Freeop. I don't know if do you know Ovik?
0: I don't know him personally, but yeah. I knew yeah,
2: yeah. I, I think you'd get on well with him. We made a show recently with him because they wrote uh, a piece uh, covering the compounding effects of inflation on the poor. And even at you know, two percent, the traditionally targeted two percent yep. government inflation, that has a compounding uh, impact on the poor. And actually, did, did he come? Did he get to the point? Where it's like almost anything above <laughs> zero inflation.
1: Well, yeah and he was really getting into how it like the impact of inflation is way outsized for the poor, for poorest in
0: society like it infects them the
1: most yeah with,
0: without a doubt without a doubt because that compounding effect is so insanely dramatic
2: yeah and it's not just assets but it's also to do with wage rises because um at the lower pay, end of the pay scale uh where pay is often driven by minimum wage and you know having uh, significant changes to uh Regulated, uh, sorry, legislated minimum wage is quite difficult. Mm-hmm. But also, if it's a uh, uh, minimum wage that's set within the structure of a company, it's a lot harder to change that because you, you know, we have it in the UK at the moment. So there's lots of um, there's lots of strikes at the moment. The nurses historically stri- uh, strike. The train drivers are strike. In the uh, the pilots are starting to strike because mm-hmm. they. Um, They all want a rise in their wages. Now, a very small rise for one is a huge increase in the cost for the whole business at once. Yeah. And so that is that another point on that. So I am with you on that. We, we, One of the things, though, that I think makes this a lot of these stories difficult, and I think it's an even harder story for the poor, is the price volatility. And I do wrestle with this because yeah. uh, you and I can buy Bitcoin and, you know, we hopefully have an income elsewhere, or other savings. And if it's volatile, yes, it's you know, difficult for us, but at the same time, we still have the uh, income we can rely yeah. on for our day-to-day. But We can ride it out if we can. Need yeah, to. we can ride yeah. it out, you know. Um, but other people maybe can't ride it out. Uh, some people, as you say, live in paycheck to paycheck. Can they really adopt Bitcoin? Can they really use it as their standard? Can they really afford to maybe be hit with a 25% dip one week? That is one area I've not solved. And I've yeah. not squared that circle. And I've, I've struggled with the idea that actually could we potentially, because of that, actually be creating a Bitcoin wealth gap?
0: I think that if you're truly living paycheck to paycheck and you have to spend everything that comes in to make it day-to-day, then you can't save anything. Hmm. But if you're into the point where you, ha- you can save a little... I do think it makes sense to save some in Bitcoin because no matter what you're saving in, you're facing certain death with the dollar Mm. or any other currency you want to pick on the planet, any other fiat currency, right? And history doesn't lie. And you've got, you can go back 100 years and your $100,000, you know, 50 years ago would have gone down by just an, I mean, it's almost... Not worthless, but it's pretty darn close today. I mean, I know you've interviewed Sailor a couple of times, and you've been to that house. Yeah, he told
2: well, me. I've heard the story.
0: Yeah, I mean that house sold for a hundred thousand dollars, right? In the what was it, nineteen twenties or something? I yeah. think. And I mean, that house is worth a many, lot more now. <laughs> a lot more now. But if you think about it, the way it like clicks for some people is if the woman that owned that house would have said. I want to give this money to my great-great-grandchildren, right? And she sold the house and put the 90-something thousand dollars in a safe deposit box. Those kids would get $90,000 today. If she just had the house and passed on the house, that house would be worth many, many tens of millions of dollars. And so there's your inflation. That is inflation. The $90,000 doesn't buy you shit relative to the appreciation of that house.
2: How do you deal with explaining the volatility to uh, the higher net worth individuals who want to invest the potential that they might put you know, a few hundred thousand, maybe a few million, into Bitcoin, and and they could have a chance of a fifty percent haircut over the next year? How, yeah. do you, how do you deal with explaining that to people?
0: This is emerging technology. Okay. You know, if I think one of the best examples is Amazon. Mm-hmm. So from the time that Amazon became a publicly traded company. So it had to grow, have an IPO. So it wasn't truly its infancy. But from the time it was a publicly traded company, I think six times it lost 80% of its value as a stock. And one time one of those six was more than 90%. So there is volatility in technology adoption and valuation. And we're we're going through that. We're going to continue to go through some of that. But in the longer term, I think that you know we're going to see a very clear as we do now, really, a very clear up-and-to-the-right trajectory on price.
2: All right. I want to go back to that thing a moment ago where you talked about the dollar. You say it's always facing certain death. Um, This week, we saw dollar-euro hit parity. Yeah. Um, Actually dip below it. I think it was uh, uh, 1% below. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, Which is kind of interesting. Now, this is something you can probably explain to me that I don't understand, but... um, the some uh, somebody was uh, talking about this on Twitter said there is consequence of this. This is going to mean the US is going to have to print more money, and I was like, "Huh? Why is the that? US is going to have to print more?" There are more. The, there are imp- there are global implications for our, for not only the uh, the country that the countries in Europe, but there's global there's actual implications for the US for having yes. such a high value currency.
0: Yeah, it can potentially hurt US business pretty dramatically, right? Is
2: that with exports?
0: With exports, yeah. Yeah, US, US company exports become that much more expensive and unaffordable to folks buying in euros. They buy less, the companies sell less, they suffer. It hits through that way. So I think that's the big downside. Um, but I think the dollar is not, the dollar having a good run right now, an epic run, but you know, Charlie Munger, who's about as well-respected, Financial guy as there is not a big fan of us, by the way. Rat poison. Rat poison, right? Double rat. Rat poison squared, or whatever. Um, but he, you know, there was a video clip of him from, you know, not even a month ago, where he said that your basic assumption, talking about the U.S. dollar, has to be that the currency is going to zero.
2: Hmm.
0: That's really strong language from someone who measures their words pretty carefully, and you know, so. Yes, the dollar is having a good run here. In the long run, the U.S. dollar faces serious challenges from the money printing. In my opinion, I agree with Charlie on that. Does it worry you? I've got more immediate worries, but I, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I'll live long enough to see to see it be a thing. And you know, I don't have any children, so not being completely selfish. But no, there's shorter term stuff that I kind of focus on, and I feel like. Um, it's best to spend your time worrying about things you have some kind of influence or control over, like Bitcoin, like Bitcoin, like you know, just other stuff in general, educating people on this stuff, and i don't I don't know that the outcome is avoidable. It may be inevitable, but awareness is important, and if you the the worst thing would be to be a victim of something like that and have not seen it coming or not know. So to the extent that you can inform people, educate people, this is a likely possible scenario, you know, behave accordingly, people can kind of take it upon themselves to work with solutions that they think, you know, might help. But
2: even with that, I, I mean, me and Danny were talking about this before, I I was like, well, how do you prepare for this? If you know it's coming, um, a year ago, I could have transferred my pounds to dollars and... I would have hedged UK inflation with that, but I didn't know this was going to happen. I could have put more money into Bitcoin, and Bitcoin's dropped. I could have put money into equities; equities have dropped. Uh, I could put money into housing, which has a—it seems to be the one that hasn't dropped yet. But there is a there's a lot of things pointing at housing market that's dropping. Yeah, Yeah, that's dropping. And so with everything dropped, it feels like Mm -hmm. everything is dropping. Well, what do you do? Like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I mean, I have some Bitcoin and I have a property, but I don't actually know what to do here. And I, for, I children, and I do worry for them. I do have children. I do worry for them. What And what does a collapse of a currency or of many currencies around the world mean?
0: Yeah, I can tell you the solution to how to deal with a recession or depression is not what Warren Buffett said. What did he say? He said, you've got to be really great at what you do, which is total cop-out and just a ridiculous thing for someone like that to say. If you're in Venezuela, I don't care how good a cardiologist you are it's not going to make a fuck of difference when the currency goes to zero.
2: And I know that for a fact. I went there, and I went there, and I met a guy who was a a university professor, and he just explained to me about how his entire savings just evaporated.
0: Right. So being great at something is not the solution. Um, There are no easy answers, which is why Buffett gave such a crappy answer, right? It's not because he's not unintelligent. It's because a better answer didn't come to his mind. Um, I think it's got to be... On the investment side, being aware, first, you got to be aware of the fact that it's happening, but you just said, if I'd known, I could have done X, Y, Z, right? But you have to know. So paying attention, being informed, and maybe it's just a mass psychosis of all of these things saying, shit, we need a solution to this. There is no solution. And it's kind of collectively, maybe even to some degree, self-fulfilling prophecy or positive reinforcement loop where people say, something like Bitcoin is the solution, and then, therefore, it becomes the solution because mm. the world believes it is.
2: So, one of your lifeboats is Bitcoin.
0: <laughs> it is my largest lifeboat. It is my largest lifeboat. Hey. But, you know, it's like the analogy Sailor gave. Would you, would you rather be in a little lifeboat on a stormy sea, which is what we are, right? Or do you want to be on that really big ship with a massive hole in it that is definitively going to sink? So, certain death or a little bit of risk. Or maybe a lot of risk.
2: I'll take the little bit of risk.
0: I'll take a lot of
2: risk. <laughs> I'll take a lot of risk. Um, you know, you, you seem to have pretty good conviction, which is awesome. With a high degree of humility. With a high degree of yeah. humility. Is there anything within Bitcoin that you question yourself? I mean, I know you've been in since about 2013. You said at a yeah. conference, you must have had, you've seen narratives come and go, people come and go. Ideas come and go, prices go up and down. Is there is there anything you, at the moment you're questioning?
0: Yeah, so you know, I, I chatted with Charlie Shrem about this a little bit. And one of the things that we agree on, which is certainly not popular among Bitcoin maximalists, is that the event horizon has not passed. We are still in the hopeful and experimental stage. And One could call it conviction to think that it's absolute certainty of success. And another could call it, you know, maybe being a little bit irrational or wishful thinking. I think, uh, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm constructively hopeful. And I don't think there's a better solution. And I think it's important in life to stand for something. And if you're going to stand for something from me, you want to stand for something that's morally and ethically sound. And... That's the most important thing to me about Bitcoin is that it's morally and ethically sound. no you know, no rulers. No one's disproportionately advantaged um, or disadvantaged for that matter. And so I think if you got to cheer for something and stand for something for me, it's Bitcoin. and I'm hopeful that it works out. but I'm not uh, I'm not going to say that hyper Bitcoinization is inevitable
2: All right. Well, listen, the last thing I want to talk to you about is, uh, last summer, I was in El Salvador, and I played chess with Jack Malles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't even tell me that you beat him. I'll be Come super on, impressed.
2: Mad, I didn't beat him. Uh, he is so good that we had a game, he yeah. said, I'll tell you what, I'll turn my back around from the board, and we'll play, and I'll just tell you where to push my pieces. I was like, I'm not going that far. Um, so, there is chess where you can sit down and play with somebody. I can, me and Danny can have a game. And yeah. As we go along, we'll try things and figure things out. Yeah. There's no real strategy. And then there's Jack Mahler's, uh chess, where offensively, yeah. he knows his next 20 moves. And defensively, he knows every move I make, like what he's going to do for that. So his first almost 20 moves on the ball are all automatic. He knows every scenario mapped out. And I managed to, I think I held on for about 20 moves where I was like, I'm in this game. I'm in it. I'm responding to him. I'm seeing everything. Right. scenario, I miss one thing. I'm done. done. I'm dead.
0: Yeah. The even more amazing thing about doing it with his back like that is he has to remember by you know the you know A through H, one through eight grid where every piece on the board is. So he has to know that his knight is on H three in order to move it to to tell you to move it to another square. That's a level of visualization that I don't have.
2: <laughs> no, it blew me away. Also, what blew me away was. For him um, to relax, he watches people play chess online. Interesting. He just sits there and watches these games, and then he plays speed chess. Yeah. Um, for me, it was... It was a, I was watching something and realizing I will never be able to do that.
0: I don't think that's true. It's... No, I'm,
2: I never have the dedication to do that. Maybe
0: the dedication, but if you wanted to, if you had the bandwidth and the time and the desire, I think... Chess is something that's learned. By the way, Sailor and I do the same thing. Like, we'll we'll watch, you know, chess stuff online. We'll watch Magnus Carlsen, like, play Blitz. Some people on the phone while he's... It'll be a three-minute game against another Grandmaster, and he's talking to his buddy and drinking a beer and still crushing the dude, and he'll know three moves before that he's already got it one, or that he's in trouble, and we just sit there and we're like...
2: Do you know this Magnus Carlsen? I mean, I know the name, yeah. So there's a documentary about him that's worth watching. And there's um there's this one time, I'm pretty sure it's him, where he's got his back turned like Jack. Yeah, but playing like ten people at once. What? So there's ten boards laid out <laughs> and he plays all of them essentially blindfolded, move by move on each board, and I think he wins every game. That's madness. He is he is pr- yeah, some I think there's some debate about it, but I think he's probably the best ever.
0: Yeah, that seems to be the consensus. Yeah.
2: And he's yeah. actually he's kind of cool. It's definitely worth watching it. It that.
0: The, the great thing about chess, though, is, you know, the world of Bitcoin is so all-consuming and we don't have the benefit of any holidays or weekends. So it can be very challenging to turn your brain off it from, com- from it completely. And uh, chess has been one thing that requires complete attention. Like you said, one mistake and you're kind of dust. So it's great in that sense. You know, that's why Seller and I play a lot because it, there's a period of hours there, depending on how long we play. Sometimes it's pretty long. Um, or you're phone just, away. Yeah, you just phone away. Don't care, and you just disappear for a second.
2: Well, Danny, Danny came up with an idea. Danny wants to film you and Sailor playing a game of chess, talking about Bitcoin.
0: <laughs> you can film us talking about Bitcoin. I don't. You know, I think that's just something for us. I neither. Neither one of us are Jack Mauler's level. Let's put it that way. I think we're 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 decent enough players, but not to the point that you know, going to be putting it on display. That said, I don't think you're going to get Sailor to do much other than Bitcoin-related on...
2: <laughs> I mean, it be a Bitcoin chess game.
0: <laughs> Bitcoin chess game. Who, See, but it's all it's all focusing. We can't talk about Bitcoin while we're playing chess. Who who wins the most? He wins the most. He wins the most. He wins the most. But um, I win probably 30%, 40% of the okay. time. And when we first started... uh. I'm not sure if I told this before, but I don't know if you saw the outdoor board when you were there. It's kind of a big outdoor board. And uh, the first time we played, um, I really didn't... I played when I was a kid, didn't really know or remember the rules. And I moved my pawn and he kicked, like literally kicked my pawn off the board. And I, and I go, what the fuck? You know? And our friend Ray looks at me and just like shakes his head like, yeah, it's a thing. I'm like, he goes, en passant. And I was like... Is that and uh so i'm a sailor doesn't give a shit that i didn't know the rule i was like sorry dude like you know you lose i'm doing my thing and so i was like all right after that i was like fuck this i'm gonna learn chess so i found a teacher like a international master <laughs> in siberia and i took like 30 hours of chess lessons uh you know on Skype and, you know, on lead chess on board and, like, learned how to play on opening strategies, things like that, how to try to calculate stuff, and just, like, had some basis. So now we're at the point where it's good, it's fun, it's competitive, the outcome's uncertain between us, and I don't think either one of us wants to, you know, get to a point where it's not fun to play the other.
2: So you're closing the gap?
0: I'm closing the gap. I'm... It's fine where it is now. I wouldn't mind improving a little bit, but it's fine where it is now. At least, at least the outcome is uncertain when we play.
2: Oh, man. Well, I would love to play more if I had time. I think, do you know, I, I, I try to get my son into playing it. And uh, it's quite interesting when you sit down with somebody who's never played chess before, to yeah. get them to that starting point of just remembering what each piece can do. And the threats. It takes some time, but it does. It, it was really interesting to do with him, but I, I should I should encourage him to get back into it. Anyway, Eric, great to talk to you, man. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate you having appreciate having you on here. Um, <laughs> tell people where to find out more about your fun and what you're up to.
0: Uh, yeah, you can find out more about my fun and me. Uh, best is probably Twitter. Um, it's Eric. No wait, what is it? It's Eric. You should know. I don't even know. It's Eric underscore Big Fund, I think.
2: <laughs> we'll stick in the show notes. Big, then. yeah, man. Daniel. Will Eric find
0: underscore it. Big Fund. Thanks so much for having uh, me. No man, anytime. Fun. Next time Appreciate we're
2: here it. in Miami, well, I'll, yeah. I'll you know I'll bring a chessboard. We'll have a game. Let's do it. All right, man. Ciao. Cheers. Thanks so much. Bye. Appreciate. it.
1: Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing to do is head over to What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review.